You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Well, good morning. Um, it's good to see all of you. Uh, the fact that you're here tells me that you regard the resurrection of Jesus as a big deal. Is that a good guess? Uh, and for some of you, maybe it's that's at varying levels, right? For some of you, maybe it's just like, well, I recognize that my friend believes it's a big deal, and so I've been invited. Maybe that's where you're at, and you're welcome if you're in that place too. Um, but it is a big deal, isn't it? Even if we just think his, like uh, culturally how it's shaped human history, just the idea of it is a big deal. Theologically, uh, it's a big deal for the largest religion in the world, Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. But for many of us, personally, it's a big deal because we have come to know the risen Savior. Now, one of the reasons for which uh, we believe that the resurrection is a big deal uh, is that it is one of four central historical claims upon which the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, rests, right? We were introduced to those four claims in the passage that was just read, if you look in verses 3 through 7. I think I've highlighted, yeah, I've highlighted them here for you, although you can't really see. The fourth one is a little bit hidden, that he appeared there. But the four claims are Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared. Now, because of the way in which these verses are constructed, and in the way that Paul introduces it, right, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, right, that's the language of a like tradition being passed on. Because it's written in the way that it's written and introduced in the way that it's introduced, most scholars believe that this, these verses here represent a very ancient creed belonging to the first Christians. Very early, in fact, if you consider the fact that even the most skeptical scholars that you can find regard 1 Corinthians as one of seven letters that authentically can be traced back to Paul. Like, we accept all 13 here, coming from Paul, but even the most skeptical scholar will say, okay, yeah, 1 Corinthians is one of seven letters that we will receive as being authentic from Paul, written in A.D. 54. So that's early. But then when you think about the fact that he said, I delivered this to you, so that's past tense, probably when he was with them in A.D. 51, that puts it back even farther, but then only after he had received it himself. And he probably received it, Three years after his conversion, when he goes and meets with the Jerusalem apostles, that's something that's recorded in another undisputed letter of Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. So what that means is, as this early creed can be dated all the way back within five years of the crucifixion itself. And let me tell you, as somebody who has studied just world religions, I mean, this is, this is sort of unheard of for something to be this early to the event at which it is talking about, right? So we've got this, this early creed that's prior to Paul. Now, this creed is also in harmony with this four-line tradition that we find in other locations. 
It is located in the earliest tradition of the Gospels. So you find it in Gospels chapter 15 and then 16. Yeah, and here you have like them being compared. This reference here to Acts chapter 13, right? That is Paul's first sermon that was later recorded in Acts chapter 13. And in each of these cases, right, you have this, this four-line sort of tradition, right? That Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again from the dead, and that he appeared, right? So what we mean by this is that we have very early attestation by multiple independent witnesses that these four central truths were a part of what the very first Christians believed and thought were, was foundational to the Christian faith. Now, a skeptical scholar might come along and, and say, well, all right, we, we can grant that, right? We can grant that this is not some kind of legendary development, right? Which some people in the past have argued like, oh, well, people didn't believe this about Jesus at first, but then now, now that this is, can be traced back to back this close to the time of the crucifixion, it's like, okay, yeah, it looks like the, this is what the first Christians actually believed. Okay, we grant that, but that doesn't mean that those things actually happened. Right? And, and so you, you're making assertions, what they, is what they would say, but where's the evidence? Right? And, and that is actually like a valid question. And it's a very significant question when you consider what Paul says a little bit later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Meaning, like, it, it's, it's meaningless. And he goes on to say, and you're still in your sins. Right? Because the resurrection, and part of what we're going to talk about, is God's validation, right, that what Jesus did on the cross actually accomplished something. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead then you're still lost in your sins, is what, what Paul says. So what I want to do this morning with you guys is I, I want to try to answer two questions with regard to the resurrection of Jesus. The first question that I want to try to answer is, did it really happen? Right, because that's important. Did it really happen? Right, and we're going to spend the majority of our time there. But then the second question I want to try to answer is, what does it mean if it happened? Like, so what if it happened, right? So we're going to kind of walk through those two questions. So the first question is, did it really happen? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Now, the resurrection isn't something that can be scientifically proven like in a laboratory somewhere. But it is a historical claim that can be subjected to the same objective historical criteria that historians, when they're trying to assess the historicity of any kind of ancient claim, this, the, they use a certain set of criteria to determine the historicity of past events. And so I, I want to introduce you to some of, we're, we're kind of going to go to history class right now, again, and, and maybe you don't remember this from because, but there were criteria that you are given, if you, if you go to a, his, a history department, to assess any kind of historical claim, right? And so I want to introduce you to three of those criteria. And some of you who are familiar with this will notice that I have collapsed three of them into one, but don't tell everybody else, right? So we've got, we've got I'm going to introduce you to three criteria. The first criteria is called uh, multiple independent, the criteria of multiple independent sources. 
The second criteria is the criteria of enemy attestation. The third criteria is the criteria of embarrassment. So let me explain what I mean by these criteria. The criteria of multiple independent sources recognizes that a historical claim is more likely to be true if it comes from multiple independent sources, especially if it is supported by early eyewitness testimony. By early, I mean that these things are reported close to the time in which the events happened. Okay? So that's one of the criteria. So let me give an example to illustrate what this criteria is about. So let's say that, is Pamela here? Pamela's here, okay, and then Jacob, let's say Pamela and Jacob separately, you see there are different sides of the room, right? They separately come in and they tell us on two different times, right? One before the service, Jacob comes in late, didn't hear the testimony, he tells us after the service that last week, Elin tripped and fell in the Winton, Ireland parking lot. So that would be an example, sorry to bring it up, Elin, this is actually just a, this is fake. I'm just, this is just an illustration. Okay. But that would be an example of multiple independent testimony with regard to this one event, Elon falling, tripping and falling in the Wind Ireland parking lot. So that's an example of the criteria of multiple independent sources. Now, the second criteria is the criteria of enemy attestation. Okay. And so what that criteria recognizes is that a historical claim can be regarded as being more likely true if it is attested by uh, some, an unsympathetic source. So let's use our example that I used just a minute ago. Let's say that Michelle, is Michelle here? Okay, Michelle, she was in an argument with one of the, several of the Winton Ireland representatives over the unevenness of their parking lot, okay? And she's saying, like, this is dangerous. People could trip on this. This argument happened a month ago, right? Elon tripped a week ago, right? She's having this argument with them, right? And they're like, no, our parking lot is fine. This is, there's no trip hazard here, you know? And then the incident happens. And then a Win Ireland representative comes and addresses us and says, okay, look, I was looking outside my office window, and I saw a, a, a tall, blonde-headed man from your church trip in our parking lot. But he was looking at other things, and he wasn't paying attention to where he was walking. It is not because of the unevenness of our parking lot. But he comes and makes this, this claim. So he, there's a dispute. He's disputing why he tripped, but not that he tripped. Right? So that would be an example of meeting the criteria of enemy attestation because he doesn't, he doesn't want to be liable for Elon tripping, but he, has, but he acknowledges that he did. Does that make sense? So the third criteria is the criteria of embarrassment. And what that criteria means is that an historical claim is more likely to be true if it involves an embarrassing admission. So let's say that Adam Parker... Right, he, he steps forward and he says, you know what, I was upstairs um, and I was actually spying on Elon from the upstairs window at Enclave. Because I've been kind of suspicious about some of his activities. And, and I actually saw him trip in the Winton Ireland parking lot on a banana that I had left there. 
But the thing is, though, I, I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I, I was in a hurry. I had to go to, to the, the worship thing before, and, and I was carrying a lot of things, and, and I was eating this banana, and then it tripped, and I didn't have time to get it. And, and so, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say that it's, I think it's partially my fault, Elon, that, that you tripped. Right? So that would, like, it's not likely, is it, that Adam would just make up a story where he would have to admit something that is embarrassing. Right? So that meets the criteria of embarrassment. So you have, you have these three criteria that all historians use. I'm not talking just about Bible scholars. All historians use to assess the, the historicity of historical claims in the past. Now what I want to do is talk about how those criterias can be used to assess three claims that I want to derive from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Right? And these, claims are, these are the three claims that I want to try to defend. Right? The first claim is that Jesus died on a Roman cross. Right? So that matches the first claim from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay? The second claim that I want to defend is that his tomb was empty. Now that claim is implied from the second claim and the third claim from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The claim that he, he was buried and that he rose again from the dead. Especially if you consider the fact, you know, and N.T. Wright spends like 500 pages on this, so this is pretty much established, okay, that when resurrection is spoken of in the ancient world, they only mean bodily resurrection. So if resurrection always means bodily resurrection, and then the claim is, is that he was buried and that he rose again from the dead, then the implication is that there's an empty tomb. You guys following that? Okay, so you got, that's the second. That's the second claim that I want to defend. The third claim I want to defend is that he appeared to his disciples after he died. And that matches the fourth claim from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I, I, I want to defend these three claims and establish them as historical using the same criteria that all historians use because if we can establish that, then we can argue what, what's the best explanation for those three claims? Well, in my opinion, the best explanation is the third claim that's given in 1 Corinthians 15, that he rose from the dead. Okay, so let's, let's kind of walk through these claims. The first claim is that Jesus died on a Roman cross. So Jesus' crucifixion is attested in all four of the Gospels, in this early creed from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in nearly all of the accounts of the sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts. So not, I'm not thinking about the Bible as in the inspired word of God right now. I'll, I believe that. But I'm just saying, just as ancient historical documents, now we have multiple um, uh, independent attestation for the crucifixion of Jesus. And then on top of that, we have enemy attestation from the first century Jewish historian Josephus, who also talks about Jesus' crucifixion and the first century Roman historian, Tacitus. So just historically speaking, right, we have good evidence to believe that Jesus died on a Roman cross or that he at least was crucified. Now that, for some people, and there's not a lot of people who argue this way anymore, but it used to be that some people said, okay, we, we grant you that he was crucified, but maybe he didn't die when he was crucified, right? So let's, maybe, right, he, he didn't die. He was thought to be dead, 
was put in a tomb, revived in the tomb, and appeared to his disciples later. So let, let's just think through what we would have to believe in order to believe that theory. That would mean that Jesus, after he endured being scourged by the Romans, which would involve something called the flagrum, which is a three-foot-long whip, two feet of which are these leather strips intertwined with broken bone and, and metal balls designed to like wrap around the body, actually cling to the body, and then rip apart flesh when, when the person whipping put his hand back. And, and there are uh, these testimonies of, of muscle being shown and bones and organs of people who endured this extreme blood loss and dehydration. That, that Jesus, after enduring that, and then after hanging on a Roman cross for six hours, where immediately your shoulders would have been dislocated, your arms would lengthen to six to nine inches. Your lungs would begin to collapse and fill with fluid because when you're hanging on a cross, you're, you're stuck in the inhale position. So you have to lift yourself up to be able to exhale in order just to keep breathing, to provide enough oxygen into your lungs that goes into the bloodstream. Otherwise, your heart's going to fail. So what you'd have to believe with regard to this theory is that he endured the Roman scourging, endured hanging on a cross for six hours with all that's involved with that, and then the Roman soldiers who are experts in death mistaken him for, they mistake him for dead when it's pretty easy to determine whether a crucified man is alive or dead. Forget the spear. Like, yeah, there was, I believe there was the spear, but let's forget the spear. If a, if a man is not moving on a cross, if he's not lifting himself up, he can't breathe. How, how long can you live without breathing? Not very long, right? So it's not hard to determine whether a man hanging from a cross is alive or dead. But let's say, let's just say for the sake of argument, Okay, Jesus endured the scourging of the Romans. He hung six hours on a Roman cross, right? They mistook him for dead. And then they continued to mistake him for dead as they brought him into a tomb. And then in a sealed tomb, Jesus revives. I don't know the right word for shimmies. Uh, shimmies out of his grave clothes that are like hardening and gummy with dislocated arms, moves a heavy stone, estimated to be over 400 pounds, up an inclined slot in order to walk on pierced feet, find his disciples, and convince them that not only had he survived the crucifixion, but that he had defeated death. Like, it's just, you know, he's got dislocated arms, it's just hard to believe, isn't it? And that's why nearly every, every scholar, including skeptical scholars, including the atheistic scholar Bart Ehrman, regard Jesus' death by crucifixion as just an established historical fact. So that's claim number one. Claim number two is the empty tomb. Right, so let's think about that for a moment. That is also attested to 
in all four of the Gospels, in this early creed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and also in two sermons that are later recorded in the book of Acts, one from Paul and one from Peter. So here we have even just assessing, not assessing the Bible as inspired, but just assessing them as historical documents. Here we have an example that even skeptical scholars would accept as, okay, this is, a multiple, this is coming from multiple independent sources supported by early eyewitness testimony. Right? But it also meets the criteria of embarrassment because who, who finds the empty tomb first? Who said it? The women do. Now, okay, so this, the, you know, I hate to say this. <laughs> I don't believe this. I'm not saying I believe this, right? But in the first century, in first century Palestine, Right? The testimony of women was regarded very, very low, like shockingly low. And you see a little bit of the evidence of this attitude even from the male apostles in their reaction to the testimony of the women in Luke chapter 24, verse 11. Now, to top all of that, who is the chief woman among this group of women? Mary Magdalene. What's like the number one thing that you would know about Mary Magdalene? Right, that she was at one time demonized by seven demons. So that's the chief witness. A woman that in first century Judaism is not regarded as giving credible testimony and one who had previously been demonized by seven demons. Right, so it's, it's kind of like, ah, okay, well. So in other words, this is not the kind of story that you would make up if you were trying to convince people of something as incredible as Jesus' tomb being empty. Does that, does that make sense? So it meets the criteria of embarrassment, but then it also meets the criteria of enemy attestation. What is the first argument that the Jews make with regard to all of this, right? The disciples stole the body. So there is a dispute on how the tomb got empty, but not that it got empty. Think about that. Now, we're going we're gonna to discuss the disciples potentially stealing the, bi- the, the body here in a, in a little bit. But just for now, it's like, okay, it's met the three criteria. But then on top of that, there's something called the Jerusalem factor. The very first Christians, where was it that they were preaching that the tomb was empty? What city? The city of Jerusalem. The very place, and this is like 50 days after, 50 days after it happened, they start to preach that the tomb was empty, and, and maybe there's rumblings before that before, but, but I mean, that, that's what we have like solid evidence for. 50 days after, they're preaching the empty tomb in Jerusalem, the very place that he was publicly executed and buried in a known tomb, belonging to one of their elite a member of the Sanhedrin. So all the Jews have to do to stop this story that they are very, very eager to stop, the fact that people are proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead, is to say, okay, everybody, who who thinks that that might be the case? Okay, all right, all right, okay. All right, so on Saturday, uh, we're holding a viewing where we're going to roll back the stone, and you're going to look, and like, oh, there he is. Right, that's all that they would have to do. But 
the tomb was empty. And, and so they had to come up with the story about the disciples stealing the body. Right, so we can, we can say, and, and because there's no ancient source to the contrary, that the fact that the tomb was empty is an established historical fact. So now we have two established historical facts, that Jesus died by crucifixion and that his tomb was empty. So the third claim is that the disciples then saw him after he died. Right, now that is attested to by multiple independent sources that I've been talking about. All four of the Gospels attest to this. This early creed dated really, really early, right next to the crucifixion in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, two different sermons that are later recorded in the book of Acts, one from Paul and one from Peter. And now, so these appearances can only be explained in three ways. The disciples are either deceivers, or they are deceived, or they are witnesses. So let's think for a moment about whether or not they were deceivers. What, what would that have to mean? Would that exactly jive with the disciples' radical transformation? If you notice the disciples, and this is another embarrassing thing on its own, Right, what are the male disciples doing while the women are going ahead trying to see if they can anoint the, the body? They're like cowering in a corner, right, afraid. They're, they're afraid. So they go from being uh, dejected and afraid, hiding from authorities, to then publicly proclaiming the risen Christ to the very people who crucified Jesus. Right, how, in the, how in the world did that happen? in the face of opposition, where they would then experience persecution, beatings, stonings, and some of them even died, including James, the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus had younger siblings, not full-blood siblings, but half-siblings, right? One of them was named James. We learn in, in John chapter 7 that he did not believe his half-brother was the son of God. I mean, how many, how many of you here believe that your brother is the son of, right? Okay, so he didn't, he didn't believe that his half-brother was the son of God, right? He actually thought he was out of his mind in Mark chapter 3. But then, all of a sudden, he is willing to become a leader in Jerusalem and then be stoned for proclaiming the risen Christ by the, the officials of the temple, this is what Josephus tells us, so enemy attestation regarding that, right? He's, he's willing to be stoned because he saw the risen Christ. Here's the thing. People regularly die for what they believe. But people don't die for what they know to be false. Right? Liars make very poor martyrs. And so these early Christians, right, the reason why we can say that, man, they were willing to endure all of these things, the only reasonable explanation is to say they at least really believed they saw the risen Jesus. And that brings us to our second option. Okay, all right, I get it. Maybe they, almost no scholars believe that they were deceivers today. 
Right? Okay, but maybe he was, maybe he was, de- they were deceived though. Maybe they, maybe they just thought that they saw the risen Jesus when they actually didn't, right? Maybe they hallucinated. But here's the problem with that. If you look in all the literature of psychology, and there's lots of research that's been done about this, we, we don't have group hallucinations. Because like, hallucinations are like a, they're like in the same category as a dream. They're projections of the mind, of individual mind. So I, I can't say to Rosalind, hey, man, I'm having this great dream. Why don't you come and join me in this dream? Like, that's impossible because I'm generating it from my own mind, plus the fact I'm asleep. So you, you can't, so that doesn't explain these group experiences, multiple group experiences that are recorded. So I don't think that the disciples were deceivers. I don't think that they were deceived. I think that they were witnesses. Witnesses to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And so given what can be discerned from the same criteria used to determine the historicity of any historical event, it seems like the most likely explanation for why a tomb of a man who had been crucified was empty and then they saw him appear to them later is that he rose from the dead. But then the second question is, so what? Like, why does that matter? What, what kind of implications does that have for me today? Right? Well, one thing that the resurrection is, is a God overturning the ruling made by lower human courts. Right? So the Jewish leaders, right, they condemned Jesus for being a blasphemer. They said, hey, you're doing things, you're saying things that only belong to God. You are not denying that you're the son of God. You even call yourself the son of man, and we know the Bible, so we know the son of man is a figure, a divine figure from Daniel chapter 7, right? And therefore, he tears his robe, right? Right? He's a blasphemer. What more do we need to be? We need to hear, condemn him, sentence him to death, right? They hand him over to the Romans. And then the Roman officials condemn him for being an insurrectionist, Right? Oh, this guy is claiming to be king, but there's only one king, and his name is Caesar. And so they condemn him to be crucified on a cross. But then God overturns the rulings of the lower courts by rising him from the dead. And in so doing, he validates Jesus, both his claims of who he said he was. He is God and king, right? And what he accomplished in his life. This means that who he is is true and what he accomplished is true. Right? Jesus, the God King, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many is what Mark 10.45 says. And, and so this is how this works. Right? This is the gospel. Right? That God and Jesus defeated the enemies of God. Our sin, the domain of darkness, and death. What the Apostle Paul taught in Colossians chapter 2 is that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually died in our place and our record of wrong was then nailed to the cross. And this is the way, Paul explains, that the domain of darkness was defeated. 
Because that record of wrong, that, that list of things that we have done wrong in our lives, you know, my rap sheet could fill the room, right? That record of wrong was taken out of the hands of the enemy. And that was his only real weapon, right? Satan is also called the what? The accuser, right? That's his main weapon, right? He takes the record of wrong, brings it to God and says, look, these guys are mine. Look at all they did. They broke all your laws. And God says, oh, okay, let me see that again. And then he goes, oh, boom. He nails it to the cross, right? And Jesus becomes a curse for us. And in this way, he takes away the penalty of sin, which is death. Right? And that's all verified by the resurrection. So that the, the, the gates spring wide open to the kingdom of God through Jesus. And then there's this invitation. You have to understand that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He doesn't have to come, become a human, and die in our place. But he chose to do it willingly. Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down willingly, and I will raise it up again. And in this way, defeat sin, death, and the devil. And so there's this invitation to come to this king, right? to live under his loving reign, and to be restored again. Right? Man, but you don't know my record of wrong. Well, maybe I don't know, but God knows. And guess what he said he will do with it if you come to him? Nail it to the cross so that your sins are as far away from you as the east is from the west. You can be forgiven of your sins. And not only that, be, be given eternal life that doesn't just begin the moment after your death, but begins now. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. You can know Jesus. And, I mean, I could go on for hours and giving testimony of what he, he's done just, just with me. Just with me. It, it's just such good news. Now, some might say with all of this, some of you are like, okay, I still don't buy it. And that's, that's where you're at. That's fine. But some of you are saying, how can, how can people not believe this? Well, I just want to just real, real briefly here at the end mention another resurrection passage from Luke chapter 24. And in that passage, Jesus appears to a group of disciples. And they're actually startled and frightened because they believe he's a ghost. Right? And then Jesus does three things. He shows them evidence. He says, hey, handle my hands. Handle my, handle my feet. G give me a little piece of fish. And then he eats it in front of them. Because he hadn't eaten in a long, long time. That's not the reason why, right? Like, he, like he, he's, he's giving, he's like, look at the evidence. And then he reasons with them. And he says this in verse 39. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Right? He begins with what they can agree on. Like, hey, we both agree that spirits can't have flesh and bones. Right, guys? Like, yeah, yeah, we, we believe that. And it's like, okay, now, right, you're touching me. Do you feel like, like, watch me eat this piece of fish, right? He reasons with them from what they can agree on to what is being disputed, whether or not he's a ghost. He's like, look, I'm not a, I'm not a ghost, see? Right? But then it says this, he opened their minds 
to understand the scriptures. Evidence is good. Evidence is not a bad thing. Reason is good. Right? But Jesus understands that it's not enough. We need divine illumination. And so today I hope, I mean I did my best, right? To, to give you good evidence. To give you good reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But it's not enough. God, God needs to, Holy Spirit, come. God needs to do something in us. So that, not, so that we're not just merely like, okay, maybe some of you are not even here. But maybe some of you are like, okay, I think I can, I can put a check mark by Jesus rose from the dead. But that's, that's, not what's being, that's not what you're being invited to right now. It's more than that. You're invited to have life in Jesus. He died on the cross for you. He rose again to give you new life. Let's pray together. Father, without your spirit being at work, we will not be changed. And so, Father, by your power, I pray now, Lord, that you would meet each individual in this room right where they're at. They know the circumstances that they brought into this room. You know the circumstances that they brought into this room. Speak to their hearts now by the power of your Holy Spirit and because of your blood. Do a work of redemption and rescue in our midst to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.